Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is The Norman Invasion of Ireland, Part 17, The Next Generation and the Conquest of Ulster. At the end of the last instalment, we saw the Norman project in Ireland face new problems when Hugh de Lacy, having settled his lordship of Meath, incurred the wrath of King Henry II, who suspected his loyalty. The show finished as two envoys for the king, Richard of the Peak and John de Lacy, arrived in Ireland with orders that Hugh was to travel to England and explain himself before the king. This episode picks up that story, looking at what Hugh did as rumours of treason circulated. After this, we will head to Munster, where a revolt broke out in 1182, and then, to conclude, we will travel north to pick up the story of the invasion of Ulster. Now, let us begin with Henry II, a powerful but paranoid man who saw enemies everywhere, by the late 1170s. For King Henry II, while winning his throne had been easy enough, holding on to it was another matter entirely. Throughout his kingdom, he faced many scheming barons and nobles who wouldn't think twice about revolting against him if the opportunity presented itself. To make matters worse, he also had to contend with rival kings. William the Lion, the King of Scotland, and Louis VII, the King of France. Indeed, in 1173 to 1174, Henry had not only faced upstart nobles and rival kings, but also his own sons who went to war against him. Unsurprisingly, this left him a somewhat paranoid and suspicious man who saw enemies often where there were none. In 1181, Henry's suspicious eyes began to focus on his representative in Ireland, the Norman Lord Hugh de Lacy. Ireland in general had been an immense headache for Henry II. Situated on the edge of Europe, the early years of the invasion had attracted mercenaries and soldiers of fortune from across his realm to Ireland. While in many respects it was good to be rid of such people, he now faced the problem that these natural schemers and plotters were all in the one territory far from his reach across the Irish Sea. Indeed, maintaining control over what was happening in Ireland was often impossible. Winter weather ensured there was little or no communication with the island for months on end. Indeed, his officials could be put to the sword and have grass growing over their graves before Henry even heard about it. 
So, when, in 1181, he heard Hugh de Lacey had married Rose O'Connor, the daughter of Rory O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful Gaelic king, Henry immediately suspected treachery. This marriage had little to do with love and much to do with politics. Hugh, as the Lord of Mead, shared a nearly 100-mile frontier along the Shannon River with Rory, the King of Connacht. By 1180, both men desired, in fact needed peace, and an alliance solidified with a marriage was the easiest way to do it. While it was unquestionably a strategically clever manoeuvre on a local level, it had wider implications. Henry was always going to see more to this than just a local alliance, even if it was innocent. At the end of the day, Rory O'Connor was a potential rival to Henry's overlordship of Ireland, and an alliance between him and the most powerful Norman in Ireland, Hugh de Lacey, didn't bode well. Henry reacted as quickly as he did predictably to stop the idea festering or developing. He immediately sent two men, Richard of the Peak and John de Lacey, to Ireland with orders to replace Hugh and sent him back to Henry II to answer for his recent actions. With the arrival of these two men, everything that Hugh de Lacey had achieved in Ireland was cast in doubt. As we saw in part 16, he had spent years fortifying and settling his lordship of Meath. But now, if the audience with Henry II did not go well, and the king thought he was plotting a revolt in Ireland, Hugh could lose everything, his lands, his title, possibly even his head. This was a key moment for the entire Norman colony though. If Henry demanded that Hugh cast Rose O'Connor aside, the implications could be far-reaching. Rose's father, Rory, would take this as a major slight. Raids and warfare could easily follow from such an event. However, a rash, aggressive response from Hugh to the arrival of the envoys could prove dangerous, perhaps only confirming Henry's doubts and lead to a negative outcome. A smart, strategic response was required, and de Lacey was more than able for this situation. From one perspective, he was in a relatively strong position with Henry II. The king was increasingly embroiled with the problem of staving off future revolts and conflicts between his five sons, who were now all nearing adulthood and growing increasingly restless. Ireland was far down on his list of priorities. Indeed, when Richard of the Peak and John de Lacey arrived, instructing Hugh to answer for his actions in person before Henry, this was strangely the first sign that the situation could be retrieved in Hugh's favour. Had Henry arrived in person at the head of an army, like he did in 1171, when he was nervous about Strongbow's intentions, it would have led to a much more volatile situation. Nevertheless, Hugh still faced a difficult road ahead. If Henry did not believe his bona fides, he was doomed. After his replacements arrived, Hugh acted very astutely and strategically. Rather than undermine the authority of Richard of the Peak and John de Lacey, he instead helped them as much as possible. While he had fortified Meath in previous years, Strongbow's lordship of Leinster was lacking similar defences. So, before he departed for England, Hugh helped the two men on a campaign where they built fortresses in Carlow, Noctofer, Castledermot, Lachlan Bridge and Tullow. This fortified the Upper Barrow Valley region, a key communication corridor in the Midlands. 
This act, however, more importantly, illustrated very clearly that de Lacy had little intention of trying to revolt in Ireland. If he had been, the last thing he would do was build fortifications for his potential foes. He then crossed to England to face Henry in person. Having displayed his loyalty by accepting his replacements graciously, the meeting went well and Hugh convinced Henry of his loyalty. There was much in his favour that he could point to. He had fought for Henry II when his sons and other barons had risen against him. Also, there was no doubt he had helped to pacify Ireland. Nevertheless, while Henry did reinstate him, his trust seems to have wavered somewhat, because from 1182, Hugh de Lacy would not be ruling with the same degree of autonomy as he once had. When he returned to Ireland that year, accompanying him was a man called Robert of Shrewsbury, a court official who would be Henry II's eyes and ears in Ireland. Nevertheless, Hugh de Lacy had achieved a major coup for his Lordship of Meath. He now had the best of both worlds, peace with the O'Connors while maintaining good relations with Henry II. Others, however, were not so lucky. Indeed, in Munster, the Normans were facing a major revolt just as Hugh returned. In 1182, as Hugh de Lacy arrived back to his increasingly secure Lordship of Meath, one of the biggest threats to the Normans in Ireland in the 1180s was breaking out in Munster. In 1177, Robert Fitzstephen and Milo de Cogan had been granted the Kingdom of Desmond in South Munster. Later that year, they conquered a vast tract of territory surrounding modern Cork City. The manner in which they took this was through sheer overawing of the native Gaelic Irish. There was almost no violence in the initial campaign as de Cogan and Fitzstephen arrived in the kingdom at the head of a large army. While this allowed for an easy takeover, they had not vanquished their enemies in these new territories and resentment against the invasion was never far from the surface. Nevertheless, by 1182, the Normans, feeling increasingly secure, had dropped their guard. That year, Milo de Cogan, accompanied by Robert Fitzstephen's son, Ralph, who at this point was married to de Cogan's daughter, set out for a parley with local Gaelic-Irish leaders near Lismore in Waterford. Waiting for the parley in a field with five other knights, the two men were attacked from behind with axes by what they thought were Gaelic allies. Both men were killed immediately. This event had profound consequences. Milo de Cogan was the man who had led the charge to take Dublin in 1170 and had been one of the most important Norman leaders in Ireland and was the first to die a violent death. This incident, whether planned or not, now triggered a wholesale revolt in Munster. Dermot McCarthy, the King of Desmond, whose power had been massively undermined by the Normans, attacked Robert Fitzstephen, who was in Cork. Robert, who had now lost both his sons, the other Meredith had died in 1177, was perhaps the last man Dermot wanted to face in a siege. Not only had he spent three years in prison before coming to Ireland, but he had been besieged at Wexford in 1171 as well. He wouldn't be rattled easily. Steeled by these experiences, Fitzstephen knew he just had to hang on for a few weeks until reinforcements arrived. It was not long before allies across Norman Ireland began to mobilise to come to his aid. Raymond Le Gros, 
His nephew, and undoubtedly the best soldier in Ireland, was already putting a relieving army together in Waterford. He did not want to risk an overland attack which would have taken him through 80 or so miles of rebel territory. Instead, he fitted out a fleet, sailed down the coast to Cork with 120 soldiers, including 20 knights. Raymond, a warrior of renown, was both a stealing influence on the Normans and no doubt had an equally terrifying impact on the Gaelic Irish. His arrival quelled the rebellion in the following weeks. Indeed, the assassination and ultimately failed uprising had a disastrous long-term impact on the Kingdom of Desmond and Dermot McCarthy. It prompted Robert Fitzstephen's nephew, Philip de Barry, to come to Ireland to help his uncle in February 1183. De Barry's descendants would dominate the Cork region for centuries to come and dramatically strengthened Fitzstephen, who is now airless. Incidentally also, travelling in that same ship that brought Philip de Barry to Ireland was his younger brother, none other than Gerald of Wales, whose writings would become the most detailed chronicle of the invasion and the one I have used for much of this series. While Gerald of Wales' arrival came in the wake of the death of Milo de Cogan, another man who had been integral to the invasion but was increasingly forgot about left the world of active politics. In 1183, Herbie de Montmorency, Strongbow's uncle, had joined the Benedictine monastery at Canterbury. Thus, he exited the stage of Irish history, leaving no heirs to benefit from his deeds in Ireland. His name would never feature in future episodes of our history. De Montmorency's donning of the monk's habit and Milo de Cogan's death now left only Raymond Le Gros and Robert Fitzstephen alive of that initial wave of Norman leaders who had come to Ireland in 1169 and 1170. Indeed, of the men who had dominated those seminal events, they were all ageing fast and unable to keep up with the hectic pace in the violent world of the 1180s. In 1183, Ireland's most powerful Gaelic king, Rory O'Connor of Connacht, abdicated his throne. Incessant feuding between his sons, brothers and nephews simply proved too much for him. However, his abdication only made the situation in Connacht worse. Within two years, what is known as the War Redoina, or War of Royal Succession, had broken out as his brother Cahal Crowderg and his son Connor battled for dominance. Rory would not stay in retirement for long, as we shall see in coming shows. While one generation was ageing and dying out, in the north of Ireland, a man from a distinctly new generation, John de Courcy, was making a name for himself in the conquest of Ulster. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. In part 14, I briefly looked at the initial Norman forays into Ulster. Now, for the rest of this show... I'm going to return to what was unquestionably the most impressive and perhaps iconic military campaign of the entire invasion. For generations after this conquest, stories about the events of the late 1170s in Ulster were told around fires of Anglo-Norman houses, taverns and army camps. According to the mythology, the conquest was led by a poverty-stricken and, in some versions, illegitimate knight, John de Courcy, John would become the embodiment of an entire conquest. In reality, he was a remarkable man, and the truth behind his myth is no less exciting. From the outset, any attack into Ulster was an immensely difficult prospect for the Normans. As I mentioned in part 14, the heartland of one of Ireland's most powerful families lay in the west of Ulster in modern County Tyrone. The O'Neills were both a relic of the past and indeed a beacon of hope into the future for Gaelic society. They had emerged as a fighting force around five centuries earlier, and while other families who had emerged at that time, such as the O'Gonacht of Cashel, had disappeared, the O'Neills in Ulster were still first-rate players. Indeed, if anyone could hold out against the Normans, it was them. Theoretically, at least, they claimed suzerainty over all of Ulster, although the minor kingdoms in the east of the province were always troublesome vassals. Either which way, any attempt to penetrate the province of Ulster by the Normans would lead to a clash with the O'Neills at some point. In this context, such a mission would require planning. It certainly wouldn't be easy. As we saw in part 14, in 1177, this little-known knight, John de Courcy, did lead 300 Norman warriors from Dublin and attacked the most isolated kingdom, Ullid, in eastern Ulster. This region was geographically separated from the nearest Norman territory, Hugh de Lacy's Lordship of Meath, by the Gaelic kingdom of Eogilla. On the face of it, therefore, the mission was almost suicidal. However, the initial conquest went well. Now, I won't go back over the battles which are covered in Part 14, but in short... By the summer of 1177, de Courcy had fought off and defeated first the local kings, the Macalevies, and then later in the summer he took advantage of disunity within the O'Neills and defeated them too. 
Nevertheless, this achieved, John de Courcy and his Normans were in a highly precarious position. They were now situated at least two days' ride north of Dublin, with the Gaelic-Irish kingdom of Irgilla lying between them and the nearest Norman territories in Meath. In 1178, things did not go well for this seemingly isolated force. De Courcy launched a raid towards the northeast coast, where according to the annals of the Four Masters, they committed great depredations. At this point, what the Normans were seeking to do was dominate the entire area of Ulster, east of the River Ban. However, this situation quickly turned against the Normans on this raid, when the local Gaelic-Irish counter-attacked. Here, Gerald of Wales, the near-contemporary chronicler, takes up the story. After severe fighting, fraught with anxiety, due to the narrowness of the pass, John de Courcy's party suffered a heavy defeat that scarcely eleven knights remained by his side while some of the remainder were killed and scattered about the woods. Indeed, as Gerald goes on to tell us, de Courcy himself was lucky to escape, and I'm quoting Gerald again here. A tiny number of his followers fought their way through to his castle, despite the fact that they had to cover a distance of 30 miles, over which they continually had to defend themselves against a force without their horses, which had all been lost, wearing their armour on foot, and having had nothing to eat for two days and nights. While this was a devastating blow to an isolated, relatively small garrison of around 300 men, supported by a small number of Gaelic-Irish forces, remarkably they seemed to have been unaffected. Later, in 1178, they raided south into modern Louth, where they took a phenomenal host of 4,000 cattle. However, unable to move swiftly, the local king of the region, Murchard O'Carl, led a counter-attack during which de Courcy and his forces suffered more heavy losses in a hard-fought battle on the shores of Carlingford Loch. By this point, the Normans, you would imagine, would have been unable to hang on, but hang on they did, and the myth of de Courcy began to take shape. Indeed, after these catastrophic defeats of 1178, all conflict with the local Gaelic-Irish, east of the Ban, appears to have ceased. The Normans emerged as undisputed masters of the region, They had built a series of strong points along the coast and soon they were launching raids into surrounding Gaelic territory with the support of the Gaelic-Irish they now dominated. While by the early 1180s the Gaelic-Irish of Eastern Ulster had either been pushed into the mountains or subdued, outside the region there was only mayhem and confusion. The extended O'Neill family was still gripped by a feud that was over a century old since the family had been divided between the McLaughlin and O'Neill factions. In 1179, after two years of relative peace, fratricidal violence broke out again with a period of horrific bloodletting. Tyrone, the O'Neill homeland, was described as desolated through war and dearth in that year. While by 1181 the O'Neills were again on the offensive, pushing west across the Ban, de Courcy was not so vulnerable anymore. In 1182 the O'Neills suffered a major defeat at his hands. Hopes of rolling back the invasion was now at an end. The Normans, against all the odds, had by 1182 not only taken a substantial tract of territory in Ulster, but had fortified it and were transforming the region into a Norman society. While there were many leading figures, the role of John de Courcy was integral. But who was this somewhat obscure knight who had humbled some of Ireland's most ancient and powerful families?
Gerald of Wales, who met de Courcy and was widely impressed by him, described him as fair-haired, tall, with bony and sinewy limbs, a born fighter and headstrong. He was also apparently impetuous in battle and often risked victory in his eagerness to win. Whether Gerald's account of the man is accurate or not, the story of his invasion is remarkable. That de Courcy, a 21-year-old knight, who according to his own later version of the story was near impoverished, could conquer a kingdom, seemed like a fairy tale. Like all good stories though, de Courcy had used a bit of poetic licence. While his small army survived many battles and did conquer eastern Ulster eventually, they weren't just soldiers of fortune de Courcy wanted later generations to believe. In recent years, the historian, Sean Duffy, has revealed that actually meticulous planning had gone into the invasion and indeed John de Courcy, while a remarkable man, had a unique set of connections that allowed him to pull off what was nevertheless a dangerous mission. His background helps understand his remarkable successes. While his birthplace was Somerset in the south of England, far from Ulster, his family also owned extensive estates in Cumbria in the north of England, directly across the Irish Sea from Ulster. They also had strong connections in the port of Chester in the north of England as well. Indeed, after Sean Duffy examined the names of some of those who had travelled with de Courcy, it was clear that many of these people were coming directly across from the north of England. It seems that de Courcy chose the isolated kingdom of eastern Ulster precisely because it was near Cumbria from where he could be supplied by sea, and therefore he was never as isolated as it initially seems. Indeed, only this can explain how de Courcy can have sustained the heavy losses he did and still hung on in there. His family possessions in the north of England would also, and perhaps equally importantly, have given him a unique insight into understanding Gaelic Ulster and the wider region. Given waterways were the motorways of the medieval world, the de Courcy family in northwestern England would have had strong connections from Scotland around the Northern Irish Sea to Ireland and, crucially, the Isle of Man in between. Therefore, the fact that Eastern Ulster was the weak spot in the wider O'Neill zone of influence would have been well known to them. In the coming years after his initial invasion, his knowledge of Ulster and the wider area was used by de Courcy to undermine the O'Neill connections throughout the region. The biggest threat for John de Courcy was his sea route to northern England and a fear that this could be cut off. Key to this route was the Isle of Man, situated directly between England and Ulster, and its king, Godred Olofsson. That Godred would attack John was a distinct possibility. He was, after all, married to a woman called Fingola, from one of the leading families in the O'Neill clan. However, given their long history and knowledge of the reason, the de Courcys were well aware of this, and in 1180, John undermined this alliance when he successfully arranged his own marriage not to a Norman heiress, but instead to Godred's daughter, Africa. This alliance with the king of the Isle of Man not only guaranteed John's sea routes to his family lands in northern England, but it also froze the O'Neills out of the region. To entrench himself further, John de Courcy embraced the traditions of Ulster. Rather than introduce saints from England for veneration, he heavily promoted St. Patrick and also the religious authority of the old Irish monastic town of Armagh. Using his prior knowledge by 1185, he had unquestionably made himself not only a major player in Ulster, 
but in Norman Ireland. While his invasion had begun in 1177 without much legal standing or royal permission, like so much else of what was happening in Ireland at the time, action was dictating what was legal and what was not. At the latest, by 1185, Henry II had retrospectively acknowledged de Courcy's conquests. Indeed, by this time, anything else was impossible. John had made himself into a hugely popular figure, built on his own myths about his deeds and conquests. He had a long future ahead of himself in Norman Ireland. It is there I'm going to leave this episode, but join me next time when Henry II's notorious son, Prince John, a man infamous in later centuries given his role in the Robin Hood myth, arrived in Ireland. Don't forget, if you're interested in those upcoming tours, contact me at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until then, Sloan. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 